When you purchase an ebook, you must agree to the terms of service that tells you what you can do with it. What is actually in that terms of service? What are you agreeing to when you buy an ebook? The answers might surprise you. In this episode, Srini Katamati interviews Chris Grosskopf on how the rise of digital products has eroded the ideas of traditional ownership. They discuss digital ownership from the point of view of the legal system, from the point of view of consumers and the companies who are creating these products. Chris is a data journalist who uses data and graphics and storytelling to build compelling news experiences. He's worked on multiple pioneering teams at organizations like the Chicago Tribune and NPR, and he's currently the first data editor at Quartz, which is a digital first Atlantic publication. He's written about how complex systems like the stock market can fail and how most of the world's art is actually locked away in museums. Outside of journalism, he has worked on multiple Python data libraries like Agate, Proof, and CSV Kit. So he is experienced in engineering as well as data journalism. In September 2016, you wrote a really great piece on term service agreements and the concept of ownership and digital ownership and how companies are kind of taking advantage of TOS agreements to destroy ownership in the digital age. So I'm curious what what kind of compelled you to write this article? You know, what, what was the inspiration for it? So my interests tend to be pretty all over the place, but I'm especially interested in the ways that law intersects with other areas, intersects with software, intersects with culture. And I think that it's sort of a rich a rich vein for doing analysis because it's got this sort of, you know, the law like like software has this sort of very logical, very analytical side to it that lends it lends itself to to being analyzed. And that piece in particular came out of, you know, it, it's by these two researchers, Prznowski and Hufnagel, who are both very active in sort of right to repair issues and issues around ownership and things like that. And right. they had written a really interesting paper, which became part, basically became part of a book where they looked at what people thought they got when they bought something from Amazon, bought something from an online store. And basically like people presume they get a huge set of rights with the material, which in reality, of course, they don't. The material they get is not governed by the laws that govern when you buy things in a store. It's governed by these terms of service agreements, these sort of not exactly informal laws, but sort of shadow legal system. And I found that whole principle really fascinating. And as I started looking into the research, there's just a huge body of material out there about that, which hasn't really, I think, been well communicated to the public. Interesting. So do you think the confusion may be because there's a certain set of expectations around physical ownership of goods that kind of people have kind of taken for granted and extended to the digital world? And, you know, if you could, you just talk a little bit about, you know, what were those original physical ownership kind of guarantees that we had? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so they talk a lot about this in their analysis. And, you know, you're right that there is like a set of, of expectations around buying things that come from you know, the long, long history of trading physical money for a physical object that you can then put on a shelf in your house. And people expect, for instance, that they're going to be able to lend it, that they're going to be able to give it to their kids when they die, that they can, you know, toss it in the fire if they want to get rid of it forever. You know, there's yeah. these sort of like very tactile expectations around right. ownership, which don't translate online. And one of the really interesting things that the researchers that I centered my piece on did is that they they did a sort of thought experiment where they 
change the text of the button that people clicked when they bought it from buy now to license now. Right. And it pretty dramatically changed what people's expectations around what they were getting. And then there was also a third variation where under license now, they also sort of listed very explicitly what rights you were buying. So I do think, I think those expectations have come from the physical world. And I also think, and, and they make the point that online retailers have done nothing to discourage that way of thinking, right? We use expressions like buy now, right. they use words like own, and those words are arguably pretty incompatible with the actual rights that you're acquiring. Right. So just to be completely clear, let's say I lived in the early 1900s and I bought a typewriter. What kinds of like ownership rights would I be able to enjoy? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think ownership, it's, you know, I, I'm not a historian of ownership, but I think that the basic expectations, I think, are pretty straightforward, right? If you have something, if you physically have it, you can do whatever you want with it. And that is is not in any way damaging to the person who sold it for you because the objects are finite, right? If you choose to resell it or give it away, you're not in any way damaging the person who sold it to you originally. But with things like eBooks and video games, they're infinitely copyable. So the ability to resell them or copy them or give them away creates a whole complicated set of knock-on consequences. And the law and the courts have not caught up with that. So now we have this sort of alternative system that regulates those things that comes through terms of service agreements and privacy policies and things like, you know, the ability to break the typewriter or to resell it just doesn't, it doesn't map clearly to the world of the internet where information can just be copied infinitely. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. That's actually really interesting. So what, you mentioned you're not a historian, but what were the, do you have a sense for the original property law that kind of protected the rights that, you know, if someone tried to take your typewriter away, you could point to and the court system could point to as like, and you can't really do that. So I'm curious, what were, do you have a sense for what those kinds of rules were? Or like, what were the original laws around that? Well, I focused in my piece on sort of the, the transition away from traditional models of ownership. So I think, I, you know, I, I don't know, I couldn't tell you in detail exactly what the, the sort of, you know, United Kingdom legal model that we inherited in the States was. But but what, what I think is really interesting is that when this problem, this sort of like shadow system of regulation evolved from, you know, from the floppy disk era, basically, when companies were, were trying to sell software for the first time, and they would, they realized that somebody could just copy it. And they didn't have like, they couldn't figure out a way to make it physically uncopyable. And they didn't have the benefit of things like serial numbers, because there was no internet yet. <laughs> So they invented the end-user license agreement, the EULA, which used to be, you know, they called them shrink-wrap agreements because they were literally shrink-wrapped to the box. Right, and when, right. you broke, when you broke the plastic, that was implicitly accepting the agreement. Those agreements protected, they basically were able to say, like, by opening the box, you have effectively signed something that says that you're not going to copy it and give it away. And now when we got to the internet, you know, sort of 30 years later... Those those end user license agreements are sort of transformed in the legal system into terms of service, which apply much the same principle to a much broader set of products and services. Sure. So were you were EULAs? How did the courts react to them, and how did they enforce them? Well, that's sort of one of the funny things about this is that in many ways the courts still haven't caught up. I talked to a couple of of legal experts about this, and and they. The EULAs were originally, I think, greeted as sort of a hack to get around the fact that courts move slowly and technology moves quickly. 
So the legal system just couldn't adapt quickly enough to what was happening. I think there was, at least to a certain degree, some recognition of that by, you know, judges and others. So the, you know, what some of the experts I, I talked to would say is that the, the contract law filled a gap where property law couldn't explain things, right? And so we got the we got all of these things which had historically been governed by property law are now suddenly governed by contract law via in user license agreements and then terms of service. And those that transition had all of these consequences that now not only do the courts have to sort of figure out where things might have gone wrong, but in addition to that, they also have 30 years of fallout. Because it's not like the technology stood still starting in the 1970s, right? right? The technology is now infinitely more complicated than it was when we were shrink-wrapping pieces of paper in boxes. So they also have to deal with all of that. Now, some of the people I talked to saw some good trends in sort of the courts, a few decisions that seem to maybe tend toward thinking about restoring some rights of ownership. But in the vast majority of cases that people I talk to who are for a more traditional property model are quite sanguine about it. They, they really don't mm. foresee a clear path. And there's some crazy ideas around like using like the blockchain to track ownership right. and, and that yeah. stuff is all very interesting. But you know, if the courts can't, can't answer the basic questions, the likelihood we're going to get a grand new regulatory scheme, I think it's pretty, pretty outlandish. Yeah. And I, and I think like, it seems like technology is not the, problem here or like a tech like we don't need a technological solution right? it seems like we kind of need more of a legal solution or an agreement of some kind yeah. i mean that's one of the reasons why i like this particular story and that dri- drives a lot of the stories that i write is that i find that there is a very popular line of thinking about problems being technical problems that end up being legal problems you know i'm reminded of you know a lot of the sort of civic civic hacking projects over the last 10 years or so a lot of people went into those problems thinking that the problems with city government or the problems with state government were technical problems. That actually makes a lot of sense. So, you know, we used to have EULAs and then we changed to TOS agreements because it turns out you can't shrink wrap digital, you know, SaaS software and there's no like shrink wrap to, to turn over or whatever. But what is the difference between a EULA and a term service agreement for people who aren't familiar with it? Legally, it's a complicated question, but the, the basic the basic principle is that EULAs cover cover software, and terms of service agreements cover services and things that you do on the web. So now there's a pretty fuzzy line there, as I think most of the listeners of this podcast will understand. That like like what's right. an app? Is right. it, you know yeah, yeah. is it software? Is it a service? If the software doesn't work without a service, and that has had you know one of the things I talk about towards the end of that story is that that line is going fuzzier and fuzzier over time. And now what we find is that physical products that you buy comes with terms of service agreements because they're dependent on the internet. Yeah, to to talk about that a little bit more, I mean, so what are some examples? I mean, I'm sure people own products, physical products that fall into that category that they don't even know about. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, any Internet of Things device almost certainly has some kind of a terms of service agreement covering the API that that device is connecting to. And those range across a really, really wide, wide spectrum, all the way from things like John Deere tractors, which come with a terms of terms of service, and which has been a huge problem for farmers that can't get their equipment repaired except by, yeah, except by John Deere. 
But there's also, you know, sort of silly things all the way on what might be considered the other end of the spectrum, like like sex toys, which now, so you know, some sex toys are designed to phone home right. and those are to be operated remotely. And those things come with terms of service agreements. And you get into really weird issues about privacy, about data collection, about your ability to use something you paid money for if you don't want it connected to the Internet. And those are just two kind of like very different examples. But there's a whole world of stuff in the middle. I mean, covering things like like Alexa or, yeah. you know, a fancy set of Bluetooth headphones or whatever it might be. There's terms of service all over the place now. Interesting. Do you have any examples of court cases around kind of TOS agreements where, you know, people feel like their rights were, you know, infringed upon, but the TOS agreements kind of allowed those? Like, do you have any kind of examples of those? You know, I don't have any ready right at hand. The truth is that the TOS agreements are pretty untested in courts. So if you talk to, so I talked to one expert, Nancy Kim, and she's covered this in really fine detail and has written a book about it. And I think the the truth is, or what I was able to suss out from talking to her is that a lot of these things are dependent on a pretty classical interpretation of property law. And they just haven't been tested in, not all of the aspects of these things have been tested in modern environments, modern legal environments. And there's also a lot of things that are sort of potentially open to reinterpretation or open to re-legislation. And certainly Congress could get involved in any number of these issues. So it's, you know, I'm sure there are a few interesting specific cases out there, but I think in general, the what I uncovered is that there's, there's just not, there's just not a lot of these cases being tested, you know, and, and one, one very particular reason for that is because a lot of these terms of service agreements include anti-class action clauses. So the only lawsuits that can be brought against them are by individuals. And very rarely is the monetary damage from the company that you buy MP3s from large enough that it would be worth you personally suing them. Even if it was, in a lot of cases, they also have mandatory arbitration clauses, which prevent you from taking the court. So there's sort of this like layer cake of things that prevent yeah. these things from ever getting to court. Yeah, let's expand on that a little bit. People who aren't familiar, what exactly is a mandatory arbitration clause? So the mandatory arbitration clauses basically say that by agreeing to the terms of service, you agree that you won't take the company to court if you have a dispute with them. You will instead meet with a mediator and that the decision of the mediator will be binding. So the mandatory part, meaning you don't have a choice, you can't take them to court, and arbitration obviously be referring to the mediator. So these clauses have really proliferated. And I would say that, you know, I actually have some numbers on this, although I have to have to pull them up, but a good 50% at least of the terms of service agreements that we all agree to have these mandatory arbitration clauses. And a lot of the big ones that, you know, that most everybody's using. The New York Times has done a lot of great reporting around this. And Basically, what it boils down to is that these companies have created a pretty impregnable legal shield to any sort of consumer action against them. They've sort of famously been used in the financial services industry, but are increasingly also used for just general software. So your, your music streaming software, you know, your, your web hosting, those kind of things probably have mandatory arbitration clauses that prevent you from taking them to court. Interesting. Have people tried to sue against mandatory arbitration? I'm curious how that's held up in court. Because it, it almost, I mean, you make it seem like it's almost impossible to sue a company like that. I mean, it is. It is. There have been things which have tested those, those arbitration clauses. But so far, in the vast majority of cases, they have stood up. Now, there have been a couple exceptions to that where specific judges have 
have thrown them out and allowed something to go to trial. But again, the incentives are pretty strongly weighted against the individual, because even if you could go to trial, is it going to be worth your time? And that's, that's like a pretty rare, so there's like a very narrow slice of cases where there's a potential for a trial to begin with. And then there's sort of all these roadblocks put up in the way of it. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. You know, one, one thing you discussed in the article pretty extensively, which I, which I enjoyed, was consumer apathy. So you actually had a quiz that was based on the study that you, you mentioned around digital ownership that kind of tested you know, people's understanding of the rights they thought they had when they purchased something online. Talk about that quiz a little bit. Talk a little bit about what you expected to see and what you ended up seeing. Yeah, so the quiz was basically it was basically just a replication of exactly what Przenowski and Hofnagel did in their original research project, which it just asked it showed a web page that basically looked like Amazon or Zappos or something, and then you know it had a product on it, and then you were supposed to select which rights you thought you got, and you know we didn't track analytics on it, but I, I feel confident that our results would have been quite similar to what they got in the study, which is that you know that most people dramatically overestimate what rights you get. In, I mean, in in point of fact, you get none of them. You get right. none, none of the rights in the list are things that you got. There's like eight different ones for lending, reselling, yeah. things like that. Yeah. I took the quiz and I, I got, I actually got them all right. Yeah. I, I put no for, I can copy for my own use, resell it, bequeath it, give it away, lend it to a friend, put it on all my devices, keep it indefinitely and I own it. And the, the message you had was actually pretty funny around that because I got, I got a whole of them right. Yeah, no, and which is, you know, obviously like that's rare. I had to, yeah. I had to handle that case in the code, but sure. that's not the answer we expect. Right. I mean, you know, Quartz's audience is a sort of self-selecting for like a pretty savvy reader. So I, I'm sure that you're not the only one who got them all right. But I do think that, you know, the average user certainly doesn't understand that all of their music could disappear at a moment's notice and they would have absolutely no recourse. I just don't think that's the way people engage with the world. And to the point of apathy, you know, one of the central questions in the book that Persnowski wrote, co-authored, is are people going to care about this? Like, does the next generation, do they just not care about owning things anymore? And it's a really fascinating question. And I think you can come at it from a lot of angles. I mean, there has been this line of thinking that millennials don't care about owning things because they're into the sharing economy and they're not buying houses and, you know, they value experiences more than things, you know, all this sort of like sort of tropes about millennials. And a lot of those I think are because millennials don't have any money, not because they actually don't want to own things. But there does seem to be some evidence that there is sort of a general way of thinking about owning things that is shifting a little bit. People are a little more communal about resources. And it remains to be seen if there will be a backlash at some point. I mean, I can certainly imagine for my own sake that, you know, if I'm 75 and I die and I own, you know, I own a thousand movies on Amazon, you know, own all the classics and I can't give them to my kid when I die. I can imagine that suddenly becoming a really big issue for me, like not having cared for a long time, but then your first generation of digital natives is about to die. You know, yeah, it's like it's like your health, right? It's like it's only a you only really start to care about it when you when you notice it's or it's like too late, right? Yeah, I mean the other the other place where I, that I think it's fascinating, and I didn't get into this in the story. I've always wanted to revisit it, but I think it's interesting to think about how much people value things that they create in digital worlds. So you know, with some notable exceptions, if you play a video game and you spend hours and hours and hours building your perfect castle, you don't own it. 
and you don't own the rights to the way it looks and you don't own the ability to replicate it on your own server and you don't own anything about it. So I think there's an interesting question to what extent, you know, kids today, kids yesterday and kids tomorrow are going to going to grow up feeling quite a cultural deficit for not actually having anything that they make. And I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, I had some heated arguments about it. There's definitely different opinions about how much people in the future will care about that stuff. Right. But I think well, it's... Yeah. One thing that's interesting is in the in the survey you mentioned, or sorry, when you're covering the, the study itself, you mentioned that people were willing to pay more for ownership. Do you think that is like, is that actually happening? Do you think there are products and places where people are experimenting with that? Yeah, so they tested that by basically like giving people multiple price points with different levels of, of ownership. And people were pay, willing to pay slightly more to own it. Not a, like a, I don't know, it was like a 10 or 15% increase, not a huge amount. To my knowledge, nobody really does that. I mean, I, and I don't know, I think one of the ironies of this whole situation is, I don't know if legally you could, because I don't know how you could write, there's no obvious way that you can write a terms of service agreement that conveys ownership. Like the legal system simply doesn't have a mechanism for doing that. If you convey ownership, then they can copy it and give it away. I see. So the system is sort of like a disjoint, right? Where the terms of service agreement exists for commercial benefit of big companies, but they also exist because there's not an obvious alternative. So I don't want to lay all of the blame on like, you know, money grabbing CEOs. That's That would be unfair. It's also just the case that like, people wanted to run businesses and get on with their lives. And there was no clear regulatory mechanism for doing that. So now we're in the situation with this really, really stupendously ad hoc system. Yeah. And it's unclear what to do about it. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because just last weekend I I was with family and I we were on iTunes, I guess, and we were looking for a movie to watch and we weren't even like, you know, it was like fifteen dollars or something to own with air quotes the movie and you know, like three dollars or five dollars to rent it for twenty four hours. And obviously if it was like some classic movie, you maybe want to own it digitally the price option makes sense but the cheaper one was just so compelling and as you mentioned earlier there is trend towards kind of experiencing over owning i'm curious what are there kind of efforts on the legal side to to try to change this because it seems like it's not it's really unclear it's almost like does anyone stand to lose from this it's kind of like it seems like you know almost a win-win-win in some ways. Like kind of the, the legal system is, is seems fine with it. Zoomers mostly seem fine with it, and then obviously companies are kind of reaping the benefits. Yeah, well, I think to a certain extent, it's a we'll have to see. You know, if that example you described of should you rent it or or own it on on iTunes? Of course, the truth is it's it's should you rent it for a day or should you rent it until you die or they go out of business? Right, that's the actual choice they're giving you. You know, I don't think that there has been at this point sort of the level of widespread discontent or even understanding that's necessary as a preface to discontent for there to be like an organized movement against this. There are certainly scholars out there who are are sort of sounding the alarm about, about this, but I don't think they're getting a lot of play. There has been, now the, sort of the exception to that is, you know, there are a couple related issues that have gotten a lot of attention. So right to repair, the ability to basically like fix your tractor or fix other things that have software in them. That is sort of become a perennial topic. And I think eventually we probably will see legal action on that. There's a law called Yoda that keeps getting proposed every year. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, I forget what Yoda stands for, but it, it kind of doesn't matter. And that one would return some rights to to at least fix things and would, would curtail terms of service around physical goods. So th- there are, like, nibbling around the edges some important things, but there's no sort of broad effort that I've seen to retract this or find a new system. Interesting. What do you think about open source and the free software movements? How do you think some of this stuff applies to software, right? Like, so, so far, we've mostly been talking about, you know, an ebook or, or a movie or something digital that you, that you buy to consume, mostly, but not maybe used in the same way you do software. So I'm, I'm curious how this extends or applies to kind of open source software. It's a good question. I mean, as a, as a creator of open source software, I, I've asked myself that question. I think that the line that I've most often heard from people is that open source software is one of the few places where this doesn't really seem to be an issue. Because the, the alternative that was invented for licensing software, the sort of like, you know, the MIT licenses and the Apache licenses, and then even like the copy left of the, the GPL, those systems sidestep the issue of ownership in large part by providing very clear sort of disengagement from the rights of the creator, right? So they, the creator can relicense it if they want to, but the copy that you've put out there is sort of out there in perpetuity and people can take it and do what they want with it. So I don't think that these issues sort of directly impact the way people create or use open source. I think the more interesting question is, is there something that runs the other way? Is there something in the way that we do open source that we should think seriously about applying to the way we do other kinds of goods? Every time I start thinking down that path, I end up in pretty like utopian, grandiose thoughts about how to restructure the property law system. So I, I don't think those are worth repeating. But suffice it to say, I think that open source is one of the most interesting places where we do this sort of stuff on the internet quite differently. Interesting. So what efforts, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but what, what efforts have are people trying? You mentioned the blockchain, you know, the people who are really excited about blockchain as related to ownership. What are some kind of either technological or, or legal efforts, you know, besides some of the ones you mentioned, that you know, maybe people can get involved with who are interested in this? So the big one that I have seen like real movement around are these blockchain efforts. And those, there are a handful of different companies that are doing sort of various kinds of what you might call like a blockchain registry of ownership. And the one which I've seen, which is the most elaborate, I'm blanking on the company name, but there is a company in the UK that's doing it for video games. So basically like keeping very fine grained tract of who owns what in video games, which allows you to do interesting things like create very realistic market economies because suddenly that sort of wielding plus one is actually unique, right? And there's, they have like a whole spiel about all the interesting ways this can be used. Um, I, I talked to them about the possibility of like, could you extend this to music or something like that? And I think there's a lot of interest in that direction I don't think anybody thinks that the legal system would be even remotely ready to catch up to the practical implications of implementing something like that. I mean, we've seen how hard it's been for finance to wrap their heads around the blockchain, and it's an intrinsically financial technology. So to try and get like the legal system, which is one of the slowest moving social systems to catch up with this, I think is pretty much a non-starter at this point. But there have been some interesting stuff. You know, Hufnagel, who I mentioned before, has written about blockchain applications of the blockchain to ownership. The other sort of idea that comes in, comes around every now and then is the idea that you need 
some sort of centralized system of registering these things, whether blockchain or not. So you could imagine the government having a role in tracking who owns, you know, digital goods. That comes with its own raft of problems. So we'll see. I don't think any of them are in the offing, but there are people thinking about interesting things. How would these blockchain approaches work in terms of how hard would they be to integrate into a product? How would it be from a consumer standpoint? Is it is it really, you know, it seems almost like a digital serial number that, you know, like our hardware products have. I think that's a pretty good analogy. You know, you would you would somehow store a token on the chain that that is unique and that you can own at any given time and that conveys you ownership to the product. How exactly that interfaces with the the thing you own? I think that's the part that the UK company I mentioned has been working on, which is sort of like, how do you use that token to sort of unlock the thing that you're using, right? Because you still need some central repository that says, yes, that token conveys access to this thing. Maybe that has to go over the internet to do that. I think there's a lot of interesting problems there. I also think that those are technical problems and therefore probably solvable problems. Whereas I think the legal problems are much less tractable. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So let's talk a little bit about Quartz Things and, you know, a little bit of your work there. So what exactly is Quartz Things? What do you guys focus on? So Quartz, we we describe it as a guide to the new global economy. And it's, Quartz as a brand is basically a, it's a, a new way of doing business news. So we write, we draw business news quite broadly to include sort of all things that smart, savvy business people would be interested in reading about. And then the Things team inside of that is a, a somewhat nebulously defined of te- team of people who also write code and, and, and design products and sort of build these journalism-centered, unique projects. So all of us, one of the things that differentiates us from you know sort of graphics desks at a lot of other places is that we are all reporters and coders. So everybody on our team both writes the words and, and the, the JavaScript or Python or whatever it may be. And, you know, that allows us to sort of engage with a different, with a kind of story that a lot of other reporters would have a, a harder time getting into and allows us to tell stories in a way that can be quite unique. So, you, you know, the piece we were just talking about, you know, building that quiz sort of uh, gives people a different entree into that topic. So that's, that's basically what we are. Now, my own role as data editor, which is a new role as the beginning of the year, my role is now sort of interface with the newsroom and sort of spread the the things capabilities more widely. So I'm doing a lot of training and a lot of work directly with other reporters so that we can have a lot of projects that are a little bit better rather than the occasional project that's a lot better. Right. That's interesting. What are some pieces you're working on that you're really excited about? So I just launched a piece last week with Dan Koff, another reporter at Quartz, that looks at 25 years of American wage growth at the county level. So it's a, it's a map and and some accompanying charts that basically show how disconnected individual counties can be from the broader wage trends in the country. I mean, it's really pretty remarkable to see it on a map how sort of speckled it is. You know, you would think you would think like one state's doing well and another state's doing badly, but actually within a state like New York, you'll have some of the best performing counties and some of the worst performing counties. So that was a that was a fun one because we got to dig into an extremely large data set. The Bureau of Labor Statistics data we used is about 100 gigabyte single table 
<laughs> so that was that was fun. But I don't get to work with data that large every day. You know, other stories that I've been working on. I write occasionally about remote work because I am myself a remote worker. So I'm currently working on a story about how incomes have changed for remote workers and how sort of the notion of who works at home has shifted. So where do you work from and where is Quartz based out of and where is your team to kind of give a sense? Sure. Yeah. So Quartz is based in New York, but we have offices in a bunch of other places, including India, Hong Kong. San Francisco, South Africa, and the UK. So we're we're all over. And my team, the Things team, is distributed as well. So we have two in New York, one in San Francisco, and then myself in Texas. And we, of course, work with people all over the globe. So one of the things that's really exciting about Quartz is having sort of a truly global team and a truly global focus. I think it gives us the ability to do things that are much harder in a more traditional city-level newsroom. Yeah. So is most of your work... Do you do a lot of in-person journalism or is it really kind of more, you know, digital journalism? I think, you know, a lot of the buzzword nowadays is data journalism. Mm -hmm. Are you kind of more, it seems like you're you're more collaborating with people who are all over the place, but you're not physically going there. Yeah, so I very, very rarely am physically in the room with a source. You know, my own work, I would say, you know, at least 75% of my time is spent writing code or doing analysis, you know, or doing the production work to display something. When I'm actually reporting, you know, I encourage all reporters, whether they work with data or not, to pick up the phone. I mean, that's an essential part of doing this job. And and I spend a lot of time on the phone with sources and sometimes video chat. But as a general rule, I'm not pounding the pavement. And as fun as that would be from time to time, for the most part, I don't miss it. I think it's good to focus on the stuff that, that I'm good at and where I can lend added value. That makes sense. What does your workflow look like when you're working with, with people kind of all over the globe, working with people with, you know, different technical capabilities, I mean, data science knowledge, you know, like how, how, does, how does that workflow look like? What kind of tools do you use? Yeah, so it looks very different from day to day, especially in this new role, because I am working with people with very different levels of skill and also very different expectations, big and small stories, all manner of topics, some of which I know about and some of which I don't. You know, the part that I can control, the sort of the technical stack that I work with on my own time, you know, we, I, I generally use Python for analysis, although I also increasingly am using R, not so much by choice as because I'm just discovering that it is, it is in fact, more efficient for certain kind of things, certain kinds of things. And then on the website, you know, it's pretty vanilla JavaScript, you know, D3, basic visualization stack. But, you know, the the caveat that I will make to that is that one of the things that I love about working in journalism as a programmer is that it's new challenges every day. And one day I got to host a website that could get a million hits. And the next day I got to build a fancy interactive force directed graph. And the day after that, you know, I've got to figure out how to get a million rows into a database, you know, that I can give to a reporter. So... A million rows doesn't sound like much these days. A hundred million rows, a billion rows. But if you want to give it to a reporter <laughs> and it's like over email or Dropbox, I mean, it, yeah. it could be, yeah. Yeah, so it's, a, it's, it's always different problems. And so the technical tools we have to use really vary from moment to moment. And sometimes we just have to build them. Right, makes sense. To kind of wrap up this discussion, journalism is, has gone digital increasingly, as you're probably aware. I'm curious how you think digital ownership ties to digital journalism. Oh, wow, that's a great question. Yeah, how does digital ownership? I mean, I think I think the thing which that sparks in my mind is there is this has been this very you know now decade long conversation about 
how we pay for journalism. And I think that, you know, I've never, I've never thought about this before, but you know, the, the fact that people used to physically get a paper, I think did convey a sense of ownership over the material that is very different from the world of Google and where, you know, you just sort of stumble into material, whether that's intentionally via a link on Twitter or literally more, more random than that. And I think that, I think that in the same way that people are sort of increasingly leery of paying to own a song when they could just stream it, I think people are leery of paying for sort of the production side of journalism when they will get the news anyway, right? Like they are eventually going to hear about important things that burn down or blow up. And I think that one of the things that, you know, as digital journalists, we have to really think about is how we communicate to readers the worth of what we do. You know, Quartz is a bit interesting because we do have a fully ad-driven model and we are profitable, which is certainly not the case most places. For most journalists, I think it's a really, it's a really hard time to do the work, the sort of like really hard-hitting accountability work that we all want to do, while also, you know, figuring out how to persuade people that the six months you spent tracking down that piece of paper is worth them spending $20 a year, which is just a very hard sales pitch to make, right? It was easier when they got the sports scores every day or the classified ads, but it doesn't work that way anymore. We somehow have to actually directly sell people the content. And so far, I don't think we've, we've fully figured that out. Maybe there's some blockchain solution to that too. It hasn't struck me yet, but I'll keep my fingers crossed. Pay-per-view, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that people seem fascinated with trying, and I think I was just reading something about this today is sort of these sort of like flatter like models where you, you just make these sort of micro transactions, you know, for my own part, I don't understand how you get wide enough adoption to ever make that work, but it's nice. It's a nice idea. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It seems like, you know, the, the kind of last point of discussion I have, it's, it seems like with what's going on in the digital world, with what's going on with digital ownership, in addition to potentially legal changes, there may need to be changes in the business model of some of these companies and even you know, maybe people like Quartz, maybe like you guys. I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are on that. You know, what have you seen or read about that has worked or hasn't worked or just kind of any any kind of concluding thoughts you have on that? You mean specifically in journalism? In journalism or, or elsewhere. Just kind of generally curious how businesses, you know, could change their business models to accommodate for better ownership. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I think that the main thing that businesses could do is that they could try to devise legal contracts which are more explicit about what customers get and ideally declaim their interest in certain things. So, you know, one of the best terms of service out there is is actually from from Square of all places, which has a really well-written terms of service agreement. There are a handful of others that sort of really rise to another level and, and are very clear about what customers get. My immediate concern, as much as I would love to fix ownership, my immediate concern is that we we undo some of the things which are preventing any solutions from manifesting. So the binding arbitration clauses, the, the anti-class action clauses, the explicitly taking ownership of, of all the goods in the terms of service. You know, a lot of those things are, I think, pretty directly damaging. And I think that they are preventing any sort of progress for companies that might actually want to try something different. So hopefully we make some progress on those and then the bigger picture things might start to become a little more clear. No, that makes a lot of sense. So you, you mentioned the Square's 
term service agreement is is easier to understand. Is it still written in the classical legalese way, or that's something that's kind of always interested me? Is just like the fact that even if they're well written, they're really long. They're not really annotated. There's not really usually any images. You know, so I'm I'm curious if you know maybe the world needs like a rap genius for term service agreements or something. Yeah. No. Now that you mentioned it, now I'm I'm afraid it might not be Square. I might have to double check which company it is, but. The company which I'm thinking of, it's not written in legalese. And there, there is a movement towards companies at least having a plain text version of their license. So actually, Facebook and Google both do. They both have plain text versions. So that is part of what needs to be done. These things need to be written so that people can understand them. But they also need to be integrated into the process of buying so that people don't just agree to them once at the very beginning and then, and then not understand how what they agreed to applies to the thing they actually get. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Great, Chris. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I really enjoyed our discussion. Thanks, Rini. Appreciate it.